Welcome to Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. Well, we have graduated. Out of the fourth commandment. <laughs> Out of the fourth commandment. I, uh, you know, and now we are into the fifth commandment. And the fourth commandment in the large catechism is several more pages than the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is much briefer in conversation too. So I think our pace matches what Luther does in the large catechism as well. I, I think so. Uh, the fifth commandment, for those who are following along, starts out at paragraph 179. Uh, and thou shalt not kill. And so this is, this is, you know, Luther kicks off the discussion on the fifth commandment and he, he really places it in context of the other, the other previous commandments. And I'm just going to read a quick quote from Luther here. And it says, Luther says, uh, therefore God and government are not included in this commandment, nor is the power to kill taken away for God has delegated his authority to punish evildoers to the government instead of parents. Therefore, what is here forbidden is forbidden to the individual in his relation to anyone else and not to the government. And this one is, that's given our recent history in the 20th century. This, that's, that's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. When you look at people like Hitler or Mao Zedong or uh, Pol Pot or Stalin, you know, there, there were horrible abuses of, uh, of government Holocaust, mm-hmm. you know, that was that that we saw in the 20th century. And, you know, so that's it's a little bit of a challenge. So we look at any government where there has been a failure and we think, how can we hand anything over to the hands of government if government is capable of doing this? It is partly the argument that you're starting to lean towards. And that is, if Luther is making the point that God still has handed into the hands of government the power to kill, are we willing to see that power in the hands of a government? Right. And and the thing is, is that when Luther wrote this, you know, here I'm referencing the 20th century, but that's nothing new. You know, in the biblical era, you have Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, we also have the history of Caesar and, and the, the, the persecution of the Christians in the early, uh, the second century, third century. Well, even Plato and Menno, uh, he has this conversation with Socrates and, and looks at where can a good leader come from? Is it genetics? Is it nurturing? Is it the environment? Is the government he's placed in? And, and there Socrates has this grand discussion about a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> where, where good leaders come from because we have evidence of bad leaders. We have evidence of good leaders. And I think what Luther's going to do in this commandment is recognize that the, the bad governments we have does not negate his confidence that God is yet still going to be at work through government, preserving justice and care in this land. One of the things that uh, I think about when I'm thinking about government and and the constraints on government, uh, it goes back to what Luther said in a, I think it was in the fourth commandment, where he was talking about, um, he was talking about the, that, that, you know, government that the first commandment is pre, you know, is preeminent over the fourth or fifth commandment. And that, 
you know, that those those who are put in positions of authority, whether it's government or whether it's it's uh, uh, mother and father, uh, they are still accountable to God, to the first commandment, have no other God before me. And that reminded me again of our discussion, and I don't even remember what pod, which episode it was, but on the Magnificat, mm-hmm. where Luther talks about, in a more practical way, how a, a leader, uh, especially a government leader, needs to keep his eyes on Christ. You know, and that's, that is really the key to being a good leader in, in, in Luther's mind. And so, you know, it's it, it sort of, it, 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 I, I see where it is, but in practical, if you find yourself, you know, if, if we were living in 1930s uh, Germany or yeah. in 1970s during the Cultural Revolution, 1970s China. The, the crisis of, of when to intervene. Yeah, and when to speak in protest versus when to say uh, this is a God-given authority that is speaking. Um, I think that's still that's a difficult thing in every generation. There is this spot of crisis where we have to say, "I must protest," and I think there should be a recognition inside of the church that we can agree, for instance, that um, injustice is bad, but we may disagree on how government may particularly enforce and control a law. And so as a church speaks up to figure out when can we say protest is necessary and the whole church must gather together in and protest against this. And when do we say this is my decision and this is the way I'm going to speak. But I recognize that you as a Christian may find a different way to speak against this issue. I was, I, have you had the opportunity to be on a jury? Uh, I, I have not. I have sat and with the possibility, but never was chosen, no. I was in St. Louis, and I was uh, called for jury duty. There was maybe 200 people that were called for the slate of this trial. It was a capital murder trial uh, where the state of Missouri was seeking the death penalty, and the jury was going to be sequestered. And uh, they narrowed the jury population down to 17, and I was number 16 or so. And they were doing the final, who's going to be in this jury pool and who's not. They were going to, I think, carry 15 people onto the jury uh, for the trial so that uh, if some people had to be dismissed from the jury, they wouldn't collapse the case so that they would still have, hopefully, at least by the end of the trial, still 12. Okay. So I was like number 16. Okay. And I remember being brought forward and they asked me, they said, would you be willing if you are on this jury to vote for the death penalty, if uh, all things being equal, that the crime was committed by this man. And I answered in a way that I, you know, I suppose kind of revealed that I was a seminary student at the time. And I said that I think in theory that the state has the power uh, to execute uh, someone for a crime that they have committed. I think that that is a God-given authority that is provided to the government to exercise the right of the sword. But I think that currently in America, uh, there, there is enough injustice in our criminal system and that there is enough uncertainty with the way that evidence has been presented or the uncertainty of eyewitness testimony that I think it would be difficult for me in a particular crime, uh, particular case to say, yes, the death penalty should be done. And, and so finally, you know, I've got this, I, I've like essentially written a paper on the two kingdoms and the role of the right hand and the left hand kingdom. And, and the prosecutor says, so will you vote for the death penalty or not? <laughs> <laughs> 
And I said, in theory, yes, but probably in practicality, no. He's like, huh, I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> I ended up not making it to the final pool. Not a 15. big surprise. <laughs> but I did go from 220 down to like number 16. But it, I was glad not to be sequestered for this trial. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's... And I would probably feel the same way. There, there, is, there is enough uncertainty in my mind. Like with the Innocence Project and things like that? Yeah, yeah. I, um, there's enough uncertainty in my mind. And I am thankful that I'm a, a, a citizen of Michigan where mm-hmm. I, I will not be asked to make those decisions. I don't, don't, dis, I, I, I don't believe that you know, uh, it's wrong. But uh, to for the for the state, just as Luther says, I don't believe that's wrong. But uh, I like you said, I'm, I'm, there's enough uncertainty in the system as it stands today that I I think you know I I, I would have a very difficult time with it. Yeah. You know, so, um, but let's take some time to just uh, look at this word "kill" for a second. Uh, some translations will say, "You shall not murder." Uh, some will say you shall not kill. Luther himself uh, chose a German word that did describe kill. The Hebrew word that's in the commandment here is a, a rather unique word that describes homicide or uh, manslaughter. Um, it's a word that isn't used in Hebrew to describe a just death, such as a soldier in war mm. or um, an authority that is acting in their role as a governmental authority to execute a, a sentence upon someone. The Hebrew word there is to describe uh, homicide, premeditated, meditated, involuntary, murder, uh, or homicide, or manslaughter, all of those things. But essentially, um, it's a word that doesn't describe the action of a, a soldier, or it doesn't describe the action of someone who is properly in his office doing his work. So there's the, there's that distinction back in the original. Yeah, in the Hebrew, there is that distinction, that same kind of dis- distinction that Luther has as he dismisses this commandment as applying to government. Uh, that same distinction is found in the Hebrew. But he does use the word kill and not murder. And I was reading a commentary by Albrecht Peters to try to figure out why does Luther still use somewhat a broad term like kill and not murder? Because he, uh, Albrecht Peters makes the point that Luther is concerned about any action we would do that would bring harm to our neighbor. And he thinks that Luther saw the word murder as too limiting to a very particular kind of action. And we'll see how Luther brings in the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about um, not just the outward actions of the hands, but the inward motivations of the heart and how uh, that which is blooming from a sinful heart will bring harm to a neighbor. Well, let's take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah. uh, you know what Christ says is, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly. Luther is Christ. Luther is just following Christ here, where mm-hmm. Christ expanded it to be much more than, uh, you know, physical murder. You know, than, uh, that we want to make sure that we, we not just kill with our hands, but with our heart, our mouth, our signs, our gestures, our help, um, or absence of help, or our absence of counsel. So Luther then goes on to say, Therefore it is here forbidden to everyone to be angry, except those, as we said, who are in the place of God, that is, parents and the government. 
that's yeah, and this is one of those one of those moments, you know, and uh, where when in our prayer life, when we find ourselves confessing our sins, if we ever have difficulty, you know, finding a sin to be confessing, this is. You know, go back to this. <laughs> well, yeah, I've thought about some confirmation interviews where I've got an eighth grader in my office and we're talking about the commandments and I'm setting them up for the idea that the wages of sin is death and that we all deserve death. And so I asked the, you know, the young catechumen, have you ever uh, broken the fifth commandment? Now in their eyes, I see them see themselves kind of going, da, 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 da. You mean... Are you asking me if I ever murdered someone, Pastor? And I go, yes. Have you ever broken the fifth commandment, you shall not murder? And they go, no. <laughs> and I go, I'm guessing you probably have. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been seeking harm right. or frustration with someone? Have you ever failed to offer your counsel and aid? And, and this, 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 the, you know, this counsel one where you fail to offer, where you see somebody struggling or somebody failing or you see somebody... Um, you know, where can you help? God placed us in these positions with the skills that we have. And if we choose not to use them, then that is, that is a breaking the fifth commandment. That is not That's why there's good Samaritan laws. Right. That would protect so a person. So if you, Mike, were in a car accident and I wanted to offer you first aid, um, and in doing that first aid, I actually may have prevented some more danger to you or some violence to you unintentionally. I'm I'm shielded from a lawsuit from you because I was just trying to be a good Samaritan, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You know, Luther gives this example, and I actually so so he 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 encourages the reader to imagine he has a nice family, a good income, and quote unquote greater possessions to the point where your neighbor becomes envious and speaks no good of you. And then he asks the reader to imagine that there are many neighbors who are doing this to you. To the point where they are, uh, where you start arguing with your neighbors about the injustice of envy. So he's he's walking you through this this uh, this little scenario, this growing discord that's existing in a neighborhood because because you have stuff and your neighbors don't, and and so there's this this growing discord, there's this growing envy, there's this. Um, and then he finishes it by pulling out and considering the whole episode from God's perspective. And what he says is, here here now, God, like a kind father, steps in ahead of us, interposes, and wishes to have the quarrel settled, that no misfortune come of it, nor one destroy another. He would have this commandment placed as a wall, fortress, and refuge about our neighbor, that we do no harm, nor no hurt, nor harm to in his body. And so, this is the nature of the law as a curb, as a, a. A prevention from us doing something more dangerous. That we would see this growing discord that's happening uh, through envy or, or strife. And rather than wishing harm or anger upon our brother, that we would hear this commandment, you shall not murder, and we would pull ourselves out of the conflict. And he's saying that's what God wants us to do. What was interesting to me is that when, when you read through this, the neighbor is the one who's attacking you, mm-hmm. right? And what Luther says is that the law is set in place to protect the neighbor, this neighbor who's attacking you, that this is, that the law is set in place so that you don't do harm to this neighbor who has been, uh, you know, 
speak, you know, uh, getting getting a horde against you. you yes. <laughs> it's like yeah. so he he says Thus, this commandment aims at this, that no one offend his neighbor on account of any evil deed, even though he has fully deserved it. For where murder is forbidden, all cause also is forbidden, whence murder may originate. For many a one, although he does not kill, yet curses and utters a wish, which would stop a person from running far as if it were to strike him in the neck. So this idea of the commandment is to just put a pause to even the one that would seek, uh, that you would seek to just rattle their neck. To say, you don't need to do it. And the reason you don't need to do it is because it's not your vocation to do it. And that's what I thought was so fascinating to this. Because you have, in this little scenario that Luther created here, you have the neighbor breaking that law. This this same law that we're talking about. Breaking the fifth commandment as Luther has defined it. So you've got this guy. You got this bad guy. You got this bad guy. Luther chooses not to attack the sinner, the the obvious sinner in this, but calls on the individual. The one being harmed. The one being harmed to be to to trust in God. And and it's it was an interesting thing for me to read through. I I thought when I'm reading through this, I thought for sure the bad guys were going to get it in the end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That the law was going to be used as a, a punishment against the wrongdoer. But in fact, Luther then starts to use the law as a guide for the one who in worldly justice would be understood to like go out and attack that person. And I thought that was I thought that was fascinating because what it does is it it really does put we we live in a world full of sin, you know, and, and, and we are in no position to judge our neighbor. So if it's not my position to judge my neighbor, to cause harm to my enemy, to persecute the one that does me wrong, whose vocation is it? It's the, the authorities first, and then ultimately God. And God so, works through the authorities. So Luther's just challenging people to say, stay in your lane. Do your job. Your job is to care for your neighbor, to offer him counsel and aid. It's not your job to bring punishment upon your neighbor. That's someone else's job. And that, you know, as I sat and thought about this, this really reminded me of Romans, uh, Romans 12, where, where Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that was, it, it took me some time, actually. Mm-hmm. I've gone through this, like I've said several times. I've re- I read through this, and this is... That little story, for some reason, it, this time it hit me that it it sort of turned the tables on everything, and it and it, it really did highlight Paul's Paul and, and Romans twelve. I think we're we're kind of used to hearing the law being used against the person who is the obvious wrongdoer, and here law is uh, that Luther speaking to the baptized. Uh, Luther's writing his catechism to the baptized and saying. What will you do in the face of persecution when you want to bring persecution, when you want to bring vengeance upon somebody? And he counsels them to just say, trust that that's my work. It's not that it's never going to happen. God's going to take care of it. Vengeance is God's. Well, let's take our beer break. And, and we have a, a beer today that's been provided for someone who went on a business trip to China. Uh, and, and Mike didn't, you know, we're not saying Mike brought this beer, although he has been in this place, someone else, a listener to Grace on Tap, 
provided us this beer uh, to comment on. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about this beer. What do we have here? This is this is Jingtao beer from uh, Jingtao Brewery in uh, in China, uh, from the city of Jingtao. Um, although the, the, the spelling, that's the old spelling, they, they use the old spelling T-S-I-N-G-T-A-O. Uh, on the but, beer, it's old spelling. Beer, but the new spelling has got a Q in it and all this other stuff. Um, I have, I have, I, I guess if the, the best way I can describe this, this beer is it makes Bud Light taste like a craft beer. This is, this is a very, very light beer. The 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 Chinese have extremely light beer taste. It seems to me like a, a beer that I would have tasted at a fraternity party where the fraternity did not want to pay for expensive beer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so so um now I have to say when I was traveling in China and I'll tell you uh, part of my job uh, was to back in the days that I was in China, um, I was dealing with the fleets, the uh, and the all the and the Chinese transportation industry hadn't yet coalesced around a handful of fleets. Now there are ten thousand truck fleets in this, but at this time, back ten years ago, five years ago, or so they the biggest fleets, most fleets were like a hundred, two hundred trucks, very small by you know considering the size of the country. And so I, it was my job to go around and understand the needs of all these fleets. And so I met hundreds of fleets, hundreds of people. And every time I went, they, there was like a big party when I show up, right? Big American coming. And I was, now they, they have two different drinks when, when you're out with them. And there's something called Baijiu, which is over 100 proof. And then there's Jingtao beer. Really, that's your two options. Those are your two options, almost always. So you've had this beer before, many times, and I would always ask for Jingtao because the the Baijiu, you you don't walk out of there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and they gang up on you. They sit around this round table and they keep like, wanting to give you a drink. There's ten or twelve people around the table, maybe fifteen if it's a big table, and they'll say a, a toast. The guy got one guy will go, a toast, and they'll toast me, and I have to drink. And then the guy next to him a toast, and they and so they they sort of gang up on you, and you have and so the only way you survive if you drink is if you drink Jingtao beer. And so so I I have a warm spot in my heart. Well, for although good it, toast. <laughs> Oh it is it is pretty it's it's like I said, it's it's it makes Bud Light seem like a craft beer. This is this is one of my favorites though. Well so. Jingdao was uh started by some German settlers in Jingdao, Shangdong province. Uh and as a, a German beer it followed for a while the German purity loss, but now they use some rice as an adjunct in the mash, so it's a, a little bit more um it's a little cheaper to make. Um, they same breweries. They'll make some other beers, and it's made all around um, China. But if you get the beer that's made in Qingdao, it's it's still made uh, from the pure spring waters of uh, the Laoshen Spring, uh, which was supposed to have contributed to its characteristic flavor. Uh, but now, as they mass produce it, it's a, a little bit less characteristic in its <laughs> flavor, I suppose. It's. I, I guess I would have trouble suggesting it for anybody unless you really, really, really like light beers. Uh, but, so, but it did create some good memories for you of some toasts. And so here's a toast to you, Mike. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. So we return back to the Fifth Commandment. So Luther 
picks up and he goes and he talks about the four level. He gives these four levels of prohibitive meaning for this commandment. And I'll just go with the first one. First one is uh, harm no one with our hand or by our deed. And that's obvious. That's uh, that's when when somebody hears this, that's obviously what you think about. Yeah. You shall not kill. Thou shall not murder. First thought is I shouldn't take away someone's life with right. my hands um, or uh, by deeds that I do. The second one he says is do not employ our tongue to instigate or counsel thereto. This would be essentially uh, don't encourage someone else to bring harm to someone uh, to incite violence, um, to encourage someone to bring about vengeance or attack upon someone. Uh, so this is essentially don't be the, the worm tongue in, in someone's life that encourages them to do harm. Uh, the third one is we neither use nor assent to any kind of means or methods whereby anyone may be injured. And that I guess that sort of, you know, we don't approve of the use of any quote unquote means or methods uh, to uh, where where somebody might be hurt. And I, I guess I, I sort of struggled exactly with what he's talking about. I think there. it's about designing a tiger trap for someone that where you purposely cause uh, someone to stumble uh, so that you get ahead yourself. Okay. And so this would be the example of uh, you and I are in a race and I cause you to trip so I have a better chance of winning. I see. And so we don't want to use any means or method whereby we bring about the hurt of someone else that then gives us an advantage. And then the, the fourth, the final prohibit of meaning uh, to do not kill is that the heart be not ill. And I think this is kind of that reminder from the Sermon on the Mount uh, when Jesus says, if you say to anybody, raka or fool, you as well are liable unto judgment, that the invictiveness that comes from the heart uh, that may never even be spoken out to someone else will bring harm to yourself. And so Luther is looking at this commandment as not only the harm you do to somebody else, but the harm you do to your own soul by allowing anger to fester inside of you. So there's this this peeling away of the onion, this you know these four layers of meaning getting more and more subtle and and really un un uncovering it, and things tend to work from the fourth to the first mm -hmm. right you're, you're going to start so at, he says the obvious first but really it our our bad behavior will most likely start with the last thing he says yeah the yeah. the heart that's become poisoned right and and so you know it's you know it, it's it really is something where uh you know you, you if we if we if we focus on that that sort of covers the rest of them i think as i as i read through this so after the, oh I'm sorry. Well I was, I was going to say just in general why do we have to say this stuff out loud? Luther says in the cause and need of this commandment is that God well knows that the world is evil and that this life has much unhappiness. Therefore he has placed this and the other commandments between the good and the evil. And I, I like the reminder that these commandments are given by God to show us the boundary between what is good and evil because truthfully in our sin that boundary gets pretty gray and murky. It gets, yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is something that's so easy to get out of our lane, like like you mentioned earlier. Well, just that that to let the poison of sin linger in our heart longer than it should. Um, so the, we've looked at the prohibitions of things not to do. Um, Luther gives the implied condoned behavior of do not kill and says uh, we are called for look to look for opportunities to do good 
to prevent and resist evil, to defend and to save our neighbor so that no bodily harm or hurt will happen to him. And this is a pattern we'll see Luther do throughout his study of the catechism, is that anywhere we see God prohibit a behavior, we also find the encouragement for the positive behavior. And, you know, it's, uh, that's actually, you see that with the, uh, the, the Good Samaritan, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, how do you love your neighbor? And, you know, when, when, when Christ talks about, you know, the, the, the purpose of the law is to love the neighbor. You know, and then they ask him, so what's that mean? And he goes into the story. And, and the story shows first the negative actions. It shows the negative action. Then it shows the, the love of neighbor, the actually going out and, 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 and helping somebody. And there's nothing in the Ten Commandments that I can think of that, that says this, but Christ brings it out very clearly in, in that story of the Good Samaritan. And Luther's just expanding on it here. And it reminds me that we are not passive in the way that care happens in this world. And we just have to do enough to avoid the evil, but we are actually called by God to be active in bringing good into this world. And so there's a few examples and I, uh, that uh, Luther gives. And you know, if you mm -hmm. see one naked, you have to clothe them. Uh, and you choose not to clothe him is what he it goes. If you choose not to clothe someone who is naked, you have caused him to freeze to death. If you see somebody suffer from hunger and do, don't give him food, you have caused him to, to starve. Uh, if, you, if you see someone who's in, innocently sentenced to death uh, and you don't save them, although you have the ways and means to do so, you have killed him. So Luther will look at Matthew 25 and, and that spot where God um, uh, shows the end of the world and the Lord coming on a cloud and the trumpet blasting and the people being separated as sheep and goats and the goats are those who are damned and the sheep are those who were blessed by his father. And when were we, when were you naked and we, we didn't clothe you and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Matthew 25 becomes a great way to imagine the positive side of the fifth commandment. Yeah, I was once involved with a church. It was a church. There's a church, uh, the, an organization. Well, it was a, ch a church where people would come to the church, you know, and they would claim to be down on their luck. And they would they would say, you know, hey, can you give me a, something? And the church would gather up stuff and give it to them. And then they go to the next church mm -hmm. and uh, and do the same. And and they went from church to church in in this little town. And and. <laughs> <laughs> got a, took a, a bundle. And so what the churches did was they got together so that they could fulfill Christ's commands here to, and what Luther outlines here. We're, because this is one of the things that's difficult is we find ourselves in the modern How can era. you do everything? How can you do everything? And so what they did was they, they got together, they created a nonprofit that they all contributed, all the churches in the, in the community contributed to. And then when somebody would come to their door, they'd say, oh, just go to this, this one nonprofit. And so that one nonprofit would care for whoever was there. They would do the survey intake. They would see what needs the person has. And then they would redirect them to each particular church for what specialty that church had done. Or, or they, would, they would have the resources at the nonprofit. At the nonprofit itself. And, and they would take care of things. They would, so there was, but it was so that this, so you wouldn't have somebody going to 10 different churches and, and, and sort of getting... Ten Gaming the system or getting only mediocre help. Right. And so there's this... But it is something that is a challenge in the modern era where, you know, well, we, we, are, we see so much suffering. It's so easy to see somebody who's... You know, turn on the TV, see mm -hmm. somebody who's suffering. 
uh, somebody who's who's starving or naked or you know, and and it's difficult to make that choice. And but we we work through these these organizations that we put in place to try to do the right thing together. You know, and at least that's what I, I see yeah. happening. So in paragraph one ninety three, Luther says, "Therefore, it is God's ultimate purpose that we suffer harm to befall no man, but show him all good and love." And as we have said, it is especially directed towards those who are our enemies. For to do good to our friends is but an ordinary heathen virtue, as Christ says in Matthew 5.46. So we have the word of God here encouraging us and urging us to something that's noble and to something virtuous. Not to just those who will repay us or make it easier for us, but to those who will bring um, maybe even no benefit to us. But that we're encouraged then to be agents of mercy, uh, to be... Uh, those who bring hope into the world by not just avoiding murder, but in fact bringing help and aid to others. So um, Luther finishes off with a, a parting shot at, at the monks, and this is you know mm-hmm. the, uh, I, I guess you know it, it's, it's not going to be Luther if he's not going to if he's not going to take some shot at, at <laughs> the, the the medieval Catholic structure. And, and so he says, uh, but, now, but know now that these are true, holy, and godly works in which with all the angels God rejoices in comparison with which all human holiness, like the monks, is but stench and filth and besides deserves nothing but wrath and damnation. You don't need to be a monk to fulfill the fifth commandment. In fact, he says even the private work of a monk in his own cell praying to someone um, is nothing in comparison to the one that is able to uh, help his enemy and those who are persecuting him. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that does it for this episode. Uh, that's That wraps up the fifth commandment. We got through it in one episode, uh, just under 40 minutes. And I guess uh, now we're, we're going to move on to the sixth commandment. Yeah, the sixth commandment we'll do in a podcast, and we'll try to figure out how to make sure that blushing... And awkwardness doesn't reveal itself <laughs> in the visualness of radio. Uh, but we're glad you listened to Grace on Tap. You can find us at graceontap-podcast.com. That's the website. If you have comments or questions about any of the episodes, that's a great spot to leave it. Uh, you can find us in iTunes or anywhere podcasts are being delivered. And uh, do leave us reviews. It helps Uh, Our podcast show up higher in the order and makes it easier for people to find us. And the best way to get a hold of us, we do have an email address, uh, graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. But uh, it's better to get it through through the website. So just uh, log into the website and we would, uh, we're very responsive there. So great, great, uh, great to to be with you again. And let's, uh, till next time. See you all next time. God's blessings. Prost.